Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. The Bible was written by more than 40 authors from various walks of life over a span of 1,500 years on, on three different continents. And in spite of such diversity, the Bible pres- presents a single unfolding story, and, and this is the way, I, at least the way I describe it, God's redemption of human beings so that he can dwell with them again. If you want to know what the Bible is about, that is how I would sum it up. God's redemption of human beings so that he could dwell with them again. And uh, uh, Norman Geisler and William Nix, they put it this way. Uh, they had another way of putting it. It's, it's much more eloquent, but th- this is what they said. The paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Whereas the gate of, uh, to the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is opened forevermore in Revelation. But if that's the gist of it, why does the Bible seem so complicated? Like in between that, that I mean, that looks look simple enough. But why does it seem so complicated in the middle between those two covers? I would suggest that it's complicated by love and free will and an enemy. And I'm going to explain. There was man's problem. You see, the, the supreme principle uh, of the cosmos or the universe and heaven is love. God is love, isn't he? But in order for there to be true love, there has to be free will. Otherwise, you just have robots. And without free will, you cannot have true love because love that is coerced or forced isn't love at all. Isn't that true? And I've often used the illustration, I'm going to do it again because there's always people here that haven't heard this before, but I'm going to use it because it's effective. Uh, if, if I come home and, uh, and my grandkids are playing and I say to them, I want you to come here, Papa's home, and I want you to come give me a hug. And I want you to hug my legs. So they obediently come and they hug my legs mechanically, and then walk away without any exchange and expression of their face. Is that love? No, because it hasn't been offered freely. But when, they, when I walk in the door, and they come bounding to me, and they grab my legs and say, Papa, I love you. Is that love? Yeah, it has to be voluntary. It has to be of free will. In heaven, there will be no one who is coerced or forced to be there. Only those who truly love and desire to be with God will be there. And that is why God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, not to tempt them to sin, but to give them free choice. In Genesis 2, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he gave him a, he, he set this one tree. He said, You can eat of anything, but this one tree you can't. And here are the consequences if you do. If they ate it, they would come to know the difference between good and evil experientially. 
They did, and they also died. But all this was further complicated by Satan, the enemy of our souls, who tempted them not to listen to God. Satan wanted to ruin God's creation, so he tempted Adam and Eve. He said, you won't surely die. God had said, you will die. Satan says, you shall surely, you shall not die. For God knows that when you eat of your uh, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You're going to be wise. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, interestingly, when Jesus was tempted by Satan after his baptism, Jesus, this is how Jesus responded to the temptation of Satan. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. They had received a word from God, and it would have been the, this would have been the right response for Adam and Eve to make. For God had given them his word on this, but they took the bait from Satan instead. They were cast from God's presence, experiencing life apart from God. They were expelled from the fruitful Garden of Eden to work on yielding soil. And they were infected by Satan's evil as well. And man and woman would now struggle to dominate one another. And their natures infected by evil would be passed down to their offspring, resulting in the first murder in human history, when Cain, inspired by jealousy, killed his brother Abel. Adam and Eve were experiencing evil and its attendant consequences, death. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man through, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. That was the point. It not just spread to their offspring, it spread through all of humanity. And as the Bible said, it starts right at birth and includes everyone. All have sinned. How many? All. And it starts right at birth. I've told this story before, but, uh, but I'm going to tell it again. When uh, we had two, uh, our two oldest, and they were just very, very young, just a couple of years old, and they were in the bathtub, and my wife hears this bang, and it's a plastic duck that goes flying out of the bathtub. And uh, so Fran goes into the bathroom, and she says, who did this? And Chris looks at Julie, and he said, she did it. And she had never, Julie had never spoken before, and she said, Crease! <laughs> now, it's funny, isn't it? It's really hilarious. But you know what, what actually happened? I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking about this. Chris, our executive pastor, <laughs> had already broken one of the Ten Commandments in the bathtub. <laughs> because... It said, he broke the ninth commandment, which says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16. <laughs> Is it true? I know we think it's very cute, and it's funny, but the truth of the matter is, he broke one of the Ten Commandments, and he's just a little thing. The whole point being, we are sinners from birth. 
And we don't just do little sins. We break the laws of God. Amen? But all this was made even worse than what they had imagined because they were now serving a new master. See the Apostle John's comments about Cain in this regard. He said in 1 John 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He was of the evil one. John says that of Cain. And in a parable, oh, I, I, had, I had several passages, but I just ran out of room in this message. And in a parable, Jesus explained that you and I are either servants or slaves of one kingdom or another. Listen to this. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Listen to me. We're all sitting here, and we are all members of one kingdom or another here this morning. There's no such a thing as you're neutral. I'm not in Satan's kingdom, but I'm also not in God's kingdom. You are either in God's kingdom or you are in Satan's kingdom, and you are either being used by God or you are being used by Satan for his, to further his purposes. That's what the scriptures teach us. That's why Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of the world. Satan thought he had God in checkmate. Why did he think that? Satan knew something about God. He doesn't change, according to Malachi 3.6. God doesn't change. He knew that God's character and attributes are always constant and consistent. He knew that God isn't fair and just one day and the next day he's not. He cannot contradict himself in any way. God cannot. God can, uh, never acts at one time according to one of his attributes and at another time according to another. Does he? No. Second Timothy, Paul wrote, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot be untrue to himself. There it is. <clears throat> God loves us so much that he wanted to get us off the hook, he wanted to pardon us, and set us free from our evil master, yet he can't be untrue to himself, he's also just, and he had to do right. He had to exact, exact death for sin. Now how do you do that? That's why Satan was gloating. There had to be a punishment for sin. There had to be a death. God had said so. So how could God pardon and set us free in love and punish and have us experience death in righteousness or justice at the same time? Satan didn't think that God could do it. As far as he was concerned, it was checkmate. And God said, oh no, it isn't. It's only check." So while Satan was uh, still gloating, God announced that he would defeat Satan and that he would do it through the seed of a woman, Eve. Genesis 3 says, I'll put enmity between you, that's, the, uh, the, that's Satan, and the woman, between your, that's the devil's offspring, and hers. He, Eve's seed, will crush your, that's the devil's head, and you, devil, will strike his 
heel, or Eve's seed. And through David, God announced that he would do it by somehow reconciling love with righteousness and justice on the other side. How can you do that? David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said this, Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Wow! How is that possible? How can God do both at the exact same time? So how did he do it? God instituted a sacrificial and feast system that taught the people about God's solution, how he would do this. Leviticus 23 says, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Now, the Hebrew word used for sacred assemblies literally means rehearsal, okay? They are rehearsals or shadows or pictures of future things to come. God chose a cast of people, Israel, through which he would enact a drama in real time and history in this world, Um, picturing how God would resolve the problem of loving us on one hand and being just about our sins and demanding justice for our sins on on the other hand. The Jewish people knew that these sacrifices and feasts were not the real thing, but that they pictured and pointed to a reality yet to come. So their prophets and religious leaders kept writing about it and looking for the person who would fulfill all the prophetic pictures of the Jewish drama. The Apostle Paul himself, a well-educated Jew, said with regard to a religious festival, these, verse 17, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in? He said, it's pointing to something. God was using a nation to enact an entire drama for the world to see. And so let's look at two prophetic enactments or two scenes of of the drama. There's uh, there's many scenes in this drama, but we're just going to look at two as they pertain to the cross and substitutionary sacrifice. There's the Day of Atonement which shows how the cross satisfied God. We always talk about the cross paying for our sins, and it did. But the the cross did more than pay for our sins. Before it could pay for our sins, it had to satisfy God, who's holy and just and righteous. The high priest was to take two male goats for a sin offering in order to atone for the sins of the Israelite community. Goat number one had to be sacrificed and its, and its blood sprinkled in the usual way. Goat number two was to be presented before the Lord. Now we're going to read out of Leviticus what happens. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head, the, the priest, high priest, and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. And in this way, he will transfer the people's sin to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. Together, the two goats are described as one sin offering. 
according to Leviticus 16. It appears that God's solution to the dilemma of how to pardon and punish us at the same time would be to get a substitute to bear our sins. We wouldn't be able to do it because if we did, we would die. So how do you love man and how do you kill him at the same time? Because the sin is in our body. It's not an abstract thing that you judge. If you judge sin, you judge a body. That's why the sins were laid on Jesus. Well, an animal isn't satisfactory substitute for a human being. Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The enactment of the goats simply pictured how God would one day provide a suitable substitute to whom our sins could be transferred for God to judge. But a goat isn't good enough for that. Amen? Isaiah prophesied such, uh, just such a substitute who would one day satisfy God. It says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord, help me with the last line, Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Who could be a satisfactory substitute for us? It had to be a man. It had to be a man. An animal. You can't, you can't say, well, I, did, I committed all these sins, and I'm going to take my pet and sacrifice that for myself. That wouldn't be sufficient. It had to be a man. But a sinful man can't die for another sinful man. Isn't that true? On death row, two men are scheduled to be to die. And so one says, a volunteers to the garden says, I'll die for the other. Well, he was going to die anyway. So that's not a satisfactory answer. That's not a satisfactory substitution. So it would have to be a perfect being. Yet who but God is perfect? It needed to be a man and it needed to be God. A God-man. Can you say thank you, Jesus? It needed to be a perfect man. And so God becomes man. One of the great church fathers of the past, Anselm, Anselm, in the 11th century said, only man should make amends for his sins, since he defaulted. Only God could make amends for man's sins, since he demanded it. Jesus Christ is therefore the only Savior, since he is the only one in whom the should and the could are united. Amen being himself both God and man. So the essence, take a look at this, the essence of sin then is man substituting himself for God, which is exactly what happened in the garden. We know better than God. We're in charge of our own life. We don't need you, God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. It's the flip side. Our substitute Jesus bore the penalty so that we sinners may receive pardon. Loving love and righteousness and justice kissed each other at the cross. 
And the proof that God was satisfied was when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up his spirit. And at that moment, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And by tearing the temple curtain himself, a heavy, heavy curtain, God signified that the substitutionary offering was satisfactory and the way now open for us to draw near to him. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God. Before you and I can be forgiven, God needs to be satisfied. Amen? Our sins are a serious matter to God. Well, there's another scene in the great drama that unfolded through the nation of Israel. And it was the Passover. And it shows us how the cross sets us free. A second prophetic enactment pictured how we're set free from Satan and sin, and we'll also see the identity of the one who was worthy to die for us. God revealed to Abram that his seed would be enslaved for about 400 years but in Genesis 15, verse 14, it's God promised that he would rescue them from their captors. If God knew they would be enslaved and that, they, that he would deliver them, why not just prevent them from going into bondage in the first place? Isn't that true? I mean, if he's going to enslave them, uh, I, I mean, why, why doesn't he just keep them from going into slavery, it was because he had them, he had a part for them to play. There was another scene in the drama to play. They had been chosen for this. This drama was to picture and point to a greater deliverance. So at just the right time, God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites and bring them into a good and spacious land, the promised land. God said in Exodus 12, 12, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, each of the ten plagues was a judgment on, on demonic principalities that were behind the, the, uh, the gods. These weren't just wooden gods. There were actual principalities behind them. In, in the heavenlies. And 1 Corinthians 10 talks about it. Deuteronomy 32 uh, talks about it. And after nine judgments, including blood and frogs and gnats and flies and livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness, God announced the final judgment that would free them. Here's what happened. Listen to what happened. God instructed each Israelite family to select a one-year-old lamb without defect from their flocks on the 10th day of the month Nisan. And on the 14th day of the month, we'll come to those days a little later, each was to slaughter their lamb at twilight. The blood was to be smeared on the doorposts and on the top uh, the lintel of their houses, and that same night they were to eat the roasted meat of the lamb that had been killed, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast, all signifying some special things that we don't have time to talk about today. He told them to eat it in haste with sandals on, cloaks tucked into their belts, and staffs in their hands, for they were about to be delivered from bondage. 400 years of bondage, and they're about to be delivered that night. It must, have been, it must have been quite a night. All these lambs bleating, 
all this blood all over the place. What a memorable night. God told him that during the night he would pass through Egypt, striking each firstborn son and bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. He continued, But when I see the what? I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that night, loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt as thousands and thousands of Egyptian firstborn sons died, child and adult alike. Can you imagine it? It would have been something. It would have been an awful, eerie thing to hear. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and ordered them to leave. And God instituted the Passover feast to commemorate this great rescue. But... The Passover was more than just a commemoration of past deliverance as great as that was. Because remember, that was just a picture of a greater deliverance, as great as that deliverance was. God had actually set it up to picture a much greater deliverance that was still to come. The Israelites knew the Passover feast pointed to a greater future reality. Jesus said there was another kind of enslavement or bondage. He said in John 8, he said, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to what? Sin. As wonderful as liberation from political enslavement is, it pales in comparison to the liberation of one enslaved by sin and the devil. And just as the blood of animals wasn't sufficient to satisfy the Father, so too the blood of animals wouldn't be sufficient to set us free from enslavement to sin and the devil. It was just a picture. We'll look at four parallels now between, or three parallels between Passover and events in Jesus' life that reveal that Jesus indeed was the reality that Passover pictured and pointed to Jesus is the one who sets us free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what the scriptures say. First of all, a lamb was selected at Passover. All the lambs for Passover came from Bethlehem. It was to be a male yearling without blemish or defect. And the high priest would go down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find the perfect lamb. This is once they were in the land and, after, and, and in Jerusalem. And after selecting the lamb, he would carry it back to the city and through the eastern gate, which, by the way, is blocked today, and he will come through that very gate one day. There's one gate that is blocked, and if you go there, that's what you would find. But Jesus, and he's going, to come, he's going to go through that gate in his second coming, amen? He went through it in his first coming, and he will be the one who's going to get, go through that gate in the second coming. But on the 10th day of the month, remember what we had just me- mentioned that, four days before Passover, that's when uh, they selected the lamb and would carry it back into the city through the eastern gate. Jesus was born... Where? In Bethlehem. 
And John the Baptist, whose father was Zacharias of the Aaronic priesthood. In John 1, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Wow. And as the priest would carry the lamb through the temple area, the people would gather with palm branches and sing praises to the Lord. They would shout, Hosanna to the Lamb of God who has come to take our sins away, which is precisely what God the Father orchestrated to happen as Jesus rode through the eastern gate on what we now call Palm Sunday. Isn't that stunning imagery? Isn't it a stunning drama that unfolds? Can you imagine a God who can orchestrate a drama made up of an entire nation on the planet, put them on a stage right in the center of history and in the center of the, of the world, where, the, where three of the continents meet, where all the main roads went through, and he sets them right there, and he says, I want you to enact this drama because I want to teach the world something about the importance the, the importance of this. Lamb selected, the lamb was examined. After the Passover lamb was selected and carried through the eastern gate by the high priest, it was tied to the temple entrance for all to inspect it because you had to make sure that you were not offering to God a lamb that was blemished. It had to be a perfect lamb. And so they would tie it there and they could observe it for several days. They had to make sure it was without blemish, that it was perfect. This would continue for the four days leading up to Passover. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, four days before Passover, everything orchestrated to the hour. He went into the temple area where he was examined and inspected by all for a period of four days. The Pharisees and Sanhedrin tried to trip him up with questions. Do you remember that? Do you remember uh, some of the things they did? Um, Should we pay taxes to Caesar, they asked him. And Jesus comes up with this this, uh, amazing response. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And they couldn't trip him up. Couldn't find a fault in him. Then they, uh, then the San, uh, you know, and, and then the Sadducees, <laughs> um, who don't believe there's a heaven, and that's why they're sad, you see. And they came, <laughs> but uh, they, they came along, they tried to trip him up, and they said, what if a woman had seven husbands when she gets to heaven? Ha ha, whose wife will she be? And Jesus, of course, had his answer for that. And uh, which is the greatest commandment? That question was meant to trip up Jesus. It was a powerful answer he gave. But on the night Jesus was arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Matthew 26 says the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find 
any. Though many false witnesses came forward. They were desperate, and the high priest had an idea. I charge you under oath to the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The high priest tore his robes and cried, He has spoken blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate, who examined and declared, I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. In fact, I found it interesting as I was meditating some years ago, and so I remembered every time I go there on this passage, I started writing down a number beside every place where somebody declared him to be not guilty. Ten times it says that. Ten times. They couldn't find, they couldn't find fault with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Ten recorded instances of people who declared Jesus righteous, including Pilate's own wife, who said, have nothing to do with this innocent man because I've had this awful dream this night. Of course, Pilate didn't listen to his wife, and he should have. The centurion, who said, surely this was the Son of God. Do you remember that? And Judas, and one of the criminals hanging on the cross, who said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded to him today, You shall be with me in paradise. Unwittingly, they all declared Jesus worthy to be the Passover lamb. Incredible. What a story. What a drama. What an act. What a God. What a plan. Unbelievable. Well, the, la uh, the lamb was not just selected and examined, but it was sacrificed. When we come to the crucifixion of Jesus, we see some amazing things. First was what happened in the sky. In Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, Joel said, Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Often, and we always connect that with, the, with Pentecost and the pouring out of the spirit. But there was more at roughly the same time. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, <clears throat> blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The sun at the crucifixion darkened at noon and remained so till 3 p.m. And it says that the moon would turn to blood. A blood moon was an ancient term for a lunar eclipse where the sun's rays are refracted through the earth's atmosphere just like at sunset. And Peter repeats this prophecy at Pentecost and refers to us. But all the biblical clues tell us that Jesus died on April 3rd, possibly, 33 A.D. And guess what we find if we run a scientific program that tells you about the sky? A lunar eclipse blood moon on that very day. 
God was trying to get Israel's attention to say that all the Passover had pointed to, all that the Passover had pointed to was now being fulfilled in Jesus. Following a sham trial, Jesus was taken to Golgotha, which means place of the skull, outside Jerusalem. There he was nailed to a cross and hoisted up. This took place at the third hour of the Jewish day, or 9 a.m. for us. And Mark 15 records it thus. It says, it was the third hour when they crucified him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, what is so significant in the careful telling of the time? Isn't that interesting? That in that short passage, you would have the time named four times, with three different times. Three, six, and nine, corresponding to our nine, noon, and three p.m. What was so significant in the careful telling of the time? The answer lies in the beautiful parallel to the Passover tradition. In the days of the temple, the evening sacrifices took place at 3 p.m. Passover would be no exception. And at 3 p.m. on the day of Passover, Excuse me. The lamb, the priest had chosen from Bethlehem to be sacrificed for the nation, was presented to the people. The formal end to the Passover occurred when one of the priests would ascend the steps that led to the top of the walls of the Temple Mount, and he would stand at the top of the southeast corner. And at 3 p.m., he would blow a shofar, a ram's horn, in a specific series of blasts. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he will have heard the blast of the shofar at 3 p.m. What will it have meant to the Lord Jesus? the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. The sound of the shofar meant that the sacrifice had been completed. God's judgment would now pass over any who applied the blood of Jesus to their own lives. And the sound of the shofar meant his atoning work on the cross was done. This explains why the Gospels record that at precisely 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, it is finished, and then he breathed his last. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
The day of atonement in which hands were placed on one goat pictured how our sins could be transferred to a substitute Jesus thereby, resolving the riddle of how God could love and accept us on one hand and yet mete out the sentence of death which our sins deserved on the other hand. But Passover reveals another important aspect of substitutionary sacrifice. Only those who choose to apply the blood to their own lives are delivered from the enslavement of sin and Satan and are exempt from the judgment that God brings upon Satan and those in his kingdom. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But the one who believes has life. Now, it's very intriguing. It's very intriguing. I caught something that the New Testament writers said in Acts 13.29 and in Galatians 3.13. Do you know what they referred to the cross as? A tree. They called it a tree. They were linking the cross with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were stirring up a memory. Why? Because God had warned Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it would result in judgment and death. But they didn't believe him, did they? They thought they knew better. They ate of the fruit and humanity was subjected to evil, judgment, and death. Century later, centuries later, God sets up another tree, the cross. And this time he says, partake of this tree and live. Believe on Jesus who died for you. Those who believe, live. Those who don't believe, like Adam and Eve, die. But this time they die a second and unrecoverable death for eternity. There isn't a third chance. There's a second chance, but there isn't a third chance. I declare with Paul, <laughs> when I sat back and I'd finished writing this, I just couldn't help but think of what Paul said. I just shook my head and I just said, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Amen? What? An amazingly wise and loving God. To go through all that, you want to know why it gets complicated in here? Because he had to solve a riddle. And he had to do it in the midst of giving you a free will, giving you and I a free will. You don't have to. 
You don't have to believe. You can choose death. But the scripture says, if you don't believe, you are already under the sentence of death. You are already enslaved. You might not think so. The devil has you fooled. Believe is what he says. Believe what I say. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want us to sing a song together. This is, uh, this is a song that we're just going to sing together because I've been singing it uh, for the last two days. <laughs> the old rugged cross. And we're just going to sing it together as a family here, church family together. On a hill far away
you might be here this morning, you came to see the kids, you, uh, whatever reason, but something inside is tugging. I'll tell you what that is. That's God's love tugging inside your heart. And you have never, you've never applied the blood to your life. You see, that's an individual decision. It's not something somebody else does for you. God set it up that way. That lamb was killed. Those who applied the blood lived. Those who didn't died. They lost a, their oldest son. A picture of death and judgment, the final death and judgment that comes. But Jesus offers you life this morning. Amen. He really does. All you have to do, unlike what Adam and Eve did, what a, great, what a great picture of what happens when we don't believe what God says. God says, there's a second tree that I've put up. And if you believe on the one who hung on that tree, the cross, the Son of God, Jesus, the, lamb, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he took your sins and the Father judged your sins in him. He paid your hell for you. You can pray and receive him right now. Why don't you follow us in a prayer right now? We're going to pray together as a congregation and you just follow along behind. Dear God, thank you so much for going through all this trouble to save someone like me. Oh God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. I deserve to be separated from God. I deserve to have my sins judged in my body for eternity. But I thank you that you solved the riddle. You sent Jesus, the perfect Son of God, to die in my place. I thank you for that. I receive his payment for my sins. And I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and be Lord of my life. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.